All right, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to head into the second to last letter of the seven letters to the seven churches in the first section of Revelation. I have been enjoying how each of these letters speaks to my life and to our church life, and I hope you are opening your heart and welcoming God's voice to speak to you as well. I think it's just so fascinating how letters written to real churches 2,000 years ago in a very different set of contextual circumstances speak to us today in our world and in our time. And while their set of circumstances may have looked different than ours, beneath the surface there was a lot of things that we have in common with what was going on. A sense of feeling marginalized or pressured, teased and tempted by culture, by idols and gods of the day. And so the letter of Revelation, the whole book itself, is offered as a gift to you and I. It was written first for those people 2,000 years ago, but the beauty of God's word is that in a timeless way it keeps speaking to us. And so it's a gift that speaks to us today. And if we had to summarize the whole of Revelation into two words, it would be this. Behold Jesus. Are you remembering that now? We're saying it almost every week. But sometimes people think that Revelation is about a whole other kind of gamut of things. And it's really not. It's about taking a a church full of people that were worried and concerned and upset and nervous about what was going on and uncertain about the future and drawing their attention away from those rabbit trails to one thing that mattered being Jesus. Behold Jesus is the message of Revelation. And then there's, if we could tag on two other words that matter a lot in this book, when you truly encounter Jesus, there are two, two responses especially that happen quite naturally and wonderfully. First is worship. Second is witness. So with that in mind, um, I, we're going to approach the letter to Philadelphia. Um, before we do, though, I want to tell you about one of my favorite sandwiches in the world. Brace yourself. It's pretty simple. It's an onion sandwich. Anybody love an onion sandwich? Hey, we've got a few people. How many people? Okay, so I got to enjoy onion sandwiches this week because Laura was out of town. (laughs) She was visiting her mother and helping her father. And when she travels, I've learned she doesn't appreciate when I appreciate onion sandwiches, so when she travels, I get to enjoy onion sandwiches, so I did have them this week. You can go any of the grocery stores right now, have wonderful summer sweet onions, they're the best. You slice them nice and thick, it's great. And then what you do is soak them in vinegar for just a few minutes, and then toast, mayonnaise, you can add cheese if you want, black pepper, it's great, and then off you go. And several later, you're a happy person. Now, I understand there was a bit of a response. I, I will pray for you at the end here. Not everybody's thrilled with the idea of onion sandwiches, uh, including all of my... Well, I was going to say all my children, but Mira's picked up on it, which is good good for her. Um, Where did I get into onion sandwiches? From my mom. When I was a kid, I remember some Sunday night, she'd make toast. You almost want to burn it, depending on the type of bread. Not black, but just really nice dark brown. And she would make onion sandwiches, and I would sit on a couch with her and eat onion sandwiches with her. Now, where did mom get onion sandwiches from? Her parents. Now, her parents and her grandparents grew up in real prairie poverty. Maybe some of you are familiar with some of those family kind of stories. And so if you had a little bit of flour on hand and you could make bread and 
If you could grow whatever you could grow in the garden, if you had a bunch of onions, guess what you were eating? Onion sandwiches. And so out of the poverty of a couple generations ago came, out of necessity, onion sandwiches. And then as my grandparents sort of grew up and out of that sort of prairie poverty they grew up into, into a life of sort of middle-class um, existence, they would still sort of, just as a fond memory, have onion sandwiches every now and again. And so my mom was introduced to it. And then, of course, as a fond memory for her, every once in a while she'd have onion sandwiches, and then it was passed on to me and now to Mira, and we'll pray for the next generations to be as blessed as well. Um, it is interesting, you know, I don't know how your family handled food, but there are certain sets of values or practices that surround food. This is just one way that we can kind of pay attention to it. And some of those values and practices are actually built on experiences that our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents had. Um, I was always raised, because of the prairie poverty a few generations back, I was always raised that you always finish all the food on the plate. Anybody with me on that? You always do that. Uh, when Laura and I started dating, I was shocked and appalled at this pastor's family that, first of all, before it was dinner time, they'd all be setting the table and preparing the last little bits of dinner, and a bag of chips would be open, and they'd be snacking. I was never allowed to do that, because you're going to spoil your dinner. So they'd be snacking, and then they'd sit down for dinner, and people would have food left on their plates at the end of dinner. And I think it's because of the bag of chips beforehand, you guys. You have got this all wrong. And then what would happen? Off into the food scraps, the plate is emptied. And I wasn't sure, is this the right person for me? You know, uh, <laughs> no, I was convinced, but I, was, I, have, I had to make a concession on that one. Now, how many of you were raised in the family where it was like, if you're done your food and there's still food on the plate, don't finish it, that's not always healthy. There's people like that in here. There are people, they're a little more nervous to put up their hands because I started the other way. You can be proud, it's okay. Laura's part of that heritage and together we've raised a family that's very confused. <laughs> Half of us finish what the others won't finish, but yeah, anyway. Why do I bring that up? As we approach this letter to Philadelphia, the hearers of the letter in around 96 AD have some things built into their thinking from their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. You see, in the region where Philadelphia was, 79 years earlier, in AD 17, there was a massive earthquake that totally leveled the city of Philadelphia. And for many of the years afterwards, there were regular aftershocks. And so do you think that that impacted significantly that generation that experienced the total leveling of their city? Absolutely it did. Did it influence how they raised their children? Absolutely it did. In fact, many of them, as they reconstructed the city of Philadelphia, chose to live outside the city gates for fear of what if the city collapses again. And so they chose a life of commuting from you know, the rolling hills outside somewhere into town to work during the day, but when it was night, they didn't want to be in Philadelphia at night. They'd rather feel safe, sort of spread out around. Why was that? Because of the fear. And so they had children, they had children. And when John is writing this letter under the inspiration of the Spirit to Philadelphia, it's worth us having in mind that this church has been rattled, quite literally, generations earlier 
but there's a memory to be dealt with. There was that memory. Now, there was also sort of a, a positive memory associated with Philadelphia. And I want you to have this in mind as we approach its letter. It was founded about 150 years or so before the earthquake. And it was, it was brought together for a strategic purpose. Um, the Greek culture of that day was looking to expand its influence. And so they saw the location of Philadelphia as strategic to them. If they could put a people there with strong Greek culture, language skills, viewpoints, etc., etc., they could help, in a sort of a missionary kind of way, advance the cultural effects of the Greek world everywhere around them. And so it was actually founded with a missionary purpose, and its mission was to advance Greek culture, viewpoints, and ways of life. And so that would have been built into a little bit of the memory of the people of Philadelphia in 96 AD when they get this letter from John. There was something they were proud of. We remember how our city was founded. We were strategic. We had influence. And so with that in mind, let's turn to the text right now, beginning in verse 7. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We open our hearts right now to hear you speak to us through this. In Jesus' name, amen. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. If you like following up with your own study, just make a little note in your margin. Go to Isaiah chapter 20, verse 22, and you'll sort of understand how back in the Old Testament they understood that somebody was coming who had an authority to hold the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, says Jesus. See, that's how the NIV translates it here. Some of you may guess a better word there. Behold. Behold, I want you to envision something. I want you to see something, Jesus is saying. I have placed before you an open door. Can everybody say open door? Uh, it was pretty good. Let's try it again. Open door. That's right. I place before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but they are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. To the one who overcomes, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Now, just think about that. Never again will they leave. Those words must have mattered to the church in Philadelphia. Why? Because of the earthquake kind of fear that was still existent generations later. People are living outside of the city. So many, many residents of Philadelphia, including these ones, gathered together to hear this letter in 96 AD. They're thinking about how every day we go into the city to do our work and then we leave the city. And this is our life because of fear of shaking, fear of more tremors, fear of earthquakes. And so the promise that comes from Jesus is, listen, to the one who overcomes, I'll establish you in my temple or my city, and you'll never have to leave. 
That must have come as good news to them, don't you think? Carries on. I will write on them, so as pillars, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on them my new name. So he's saying, if you overcome, if you remain loyal in allegiance to me amidst the cultural pressures and the gods of our age, if you overcome, I'll make you like a pillar in the temple. Uh, have you ever seen ancient ruins? What usually remains? Pillars. A lot of other things crumble around, but pillars remain. This, this probably came as good news. Okay, in the midst of a world that shakes, in the midst of a city that shakes a lot, Jesus is saying, if we overcome, he'll make us like a pillar. And then he says, I'll inscribe your names on it. I'll inscribe all these names on it. What might that mean? In the Roman world of the day, if a civil servant in the city had done very, very well, you know, had served the state exceptionally, they would honor them by inscribing their name on a pillar. It was as if that pillar was dedicated in their memory. And for generations to come, they were remembered. And so the, the people of Philadelphia, they, they've seen that. They know that. And they think, wow. To those of us who overcome, he'll make us strong. He'll inscribe his name upon us. Verse 13, those who have an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Last week, if you were with us, we looked at the church of Sardis, which looked uh, from the exterior very much alive, but Jesus announced, you're actually spiritually dead. This week, the Church of Philadelphia, have you noticed there's no sort of criticisms or corrections? Last week's church was dead. This week's church is spiritually alive. And what's remarkable is history teaches us this church stayed spiritually alive for quite a long time, 1,200 years approximately. Now, if you study this part, which is in present-day Turkey, many of the churches didn't last very long. It's as if they didn't hold closely to all of the words of Jesus. But Philadelphia did well for very long, even as the world changed around them and the Muslim world came in and totally surrounded and influenced the whole area, a church in Philadelphia remained until at least 1392. How? How in the world? I, I think we could find a few things that are just listed right in here that they must have carried on in. And then history would teach us another thing as well. We know that they patiently endured. We know that they embraced the words of Jesus and they kept them. When culture or temptation came one way, they embraced and held on to the words of Jesus. When they were threatened with their lives or the, the, the taking of their possessions, if they wouldn't deny the name of Jesus, we know that they didn't deny his name. They were loyal in their allegiance to him. We also learned that not long after this letter was written, church history would say that from the year 100 till 160 AD, a prophetess named Amia served in this church. So we see that they were empowering women in leadership and allowing gifts to flourish. And obviously, this church took seriously its responsibility and role as a lampstand. Revelation talks about the church as being lampstands, which means you don't have to produce fire. The Lord will do that but you carry it, steward it, and shine it brightly in a very dark world, and they did. So I had you say two words as we read through the text. Those words again were open door. You've remembered, some of you. 
Open door. What might the open door mean? There's one main theme in the letter to Philadelphia. Behold, there's something Jesus wants them to see. I have set before you an open door. Now, he doesn't go and elaborate and explain what it is. We just know there's a door that's open there. So it's sort of left for us to try to piece together what it probably meant to the church of Philadelphia. Now, I want us to consider something. As you read through Revelation, we discover that there are three doors in three passages, three consecutive passages. This one to Philadelphia. Next week, the letter to Laodicea includes a door. And then chapter four includes a door as well. So I want you to look at the chart that's in front of you. In John chapter four, we find a door and it's open. John gets to behold this door and it's open to heaven's throne room. Now, moving backward to Laodicea, which we'll look at next week, the door is not open, it's actually closed. And this is where Jesus is standing and knocking at the door. You're familiar with that text. And we know that this is actually the lives of the Christians. He's knocking at the door saying, if, if you'd open up, I'd come in and fellowship with you. So to Philadelphia, we find, okay, here's a door again. It's open. What might that mean? Now, it... It could be a foreshadowing of the other open door in chapter 4. Or as we may begin to see today, if there's a door that's open to heaven's throne room, to heaven, and then there's a door open to the lives of Christians, there's, there's another significant group of people so far that we don't have an open door to, unless Philadelphia is the one that's pointing it out for us. Who would that be? To those who are lost to those who don't know Jesus yet, to the lives of the lost. You can go to that. Now, what might the message then of each of these be? To the next slide, Pete. In John chapter four, the door is open to heaven's throne room. Are you on the next one, Pete? I, oh, there we go. Yeah. And what might the message of that open door to heaven's throne room be? A voice is heard saying to John, come up here. And he's brought into this experience of just worship in heaven that's going on simultaneous to what's going on at earth, on earth. Now, in Laodicea, the door is closed. It's to the lives of the Christians. What is Jesus saying as he knocks on the door? It's not verbatim in the text, but we know he's saying, would you let me in? So if the door that's open in two Philadelphia is to the lives of the lost, what might the message be to the church? Go out. Jesus wants to come in. He invites us up into the heavenly realm to see him. But what's the message to those of us if the door is open to the lost that surround us in our community and world? Go out through the open door. Now, why might this open door refer to the lost? Two reasons. One has to do with other scriptures. The other reason has to do with the fact that Philadelphia was a missionary city. Let's look at a few other scriptures in the New Testament that use the word open and door together. In Acts chapter 14, that says this, and reported all that God had done and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, a great door for effective work, and in that context, Paul's talking about evangelism, has been opened to me. It should actually be 2 Corinthians, my mistake, 2 Corinthians 2, 12, I went to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. Again, here's this idea of the gospel message of Jesus connected with open doors. And then in Colossians chapter 4, that God may open, pray that God may open a door 
for our message. So clearly there is a bit of a pattern in New Testament writing of associating this concept of an open door with the message of Jesus going out to those who are to be reached with it. So it could be that other scriptures give us a clue that the open door to Philadelphia refers to reaching the lost. It could also be built on this idea that, remember how Philadelphia was founded? 140 BC? It was noticed for its geographic location and potential for influence. It could become a highway for culture and view and way of living to make an influence around the world. It was strategically located. Philadelphia was a gateway city. It had special highways. And I think Jesus was helping the church of Philadelphia to remember, you know your own history. You're, you exist because you were put on the map to be a missionary city. So I'm placing an open door. The Greeks and the Roman world thought they were gonna have a, a great advantage in influencing the world. Guess what? I've put you here because there's an open door for the gospel to flow through you to your own city and to the world. Philadelphia was spiritually alive, but I think they could not afford to stagnate by staying. So Jesus sent a message so that they could grow by going. How many of you in here want a dangerous life? Like real dangerous. Some people put up your hands, I'm proud of you. You want a dangerous life biblically? Stay. Stay. Be inward focused. Don't think about the lost. That's a dangerous life. You want a safe Christian life? Be on the front lines of God's mission. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus wants to encourage his disciples who he's sending out on mission, so he uses these very encouraging words. I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. Whoa, thanks for the encouragement, Jesus. Now we're ready to go. Okay, that, that does sound intimidating, does sound discouraging, but if Jesus is the good shepherd, where would a good shepherd be if his lambs are out among wolves? Right there with him. Where is the safest place for you to be? Not retreated and safe in your holy huddle. Taking your holy huddle on mission together is the safest place you could be. Friends, when you and I choose a dangerous Christian life which chooses to be inward focused and staying rather than going across the street, going to the cubicle next to yours, going to the locker next to yours, finding the other person in the community who doesn't know Jesus yet and befriending them with the hope that they could experience the love and truth of Jesus yet. Too. If we don't go, we find ourselves in danger. Max Lucado, in his book, In the Eye of the Storm, tells a story about a time his dad took him and a friend of his fishing. And when they finally got to their location, the weather was horrid. So instead of fishing, they stayed in their tiny camper almost the entire time and uh, felt cooped up, and what resulted was, you can guess it, as close to friends as they were, complaining, arguing, bickering, and fighting. And he writes well about a lesson learned. L listen to his quote here. I learned a hard lesson that week, not about fishing, but about people. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. <laughs> Well, Jesus called us fisher of people, didn't he? 
When energy intended to be used outside is used inside, the result is explosive. Instead of casting nets, we cast stones. Instead of extending helping hands, we point accusing fingers. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. Rather than helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. The result? Church scrooges. Bahambug spirituality. Beady eyes searching for the warts of others while ignoring the warts on the nose below. Crooked fingers that bypass strengths and point out weaknesses. Split churches, poor testimonies, broken hearts, legalistic wars. And sadly, the poor go unfed. Confused go uncounseled and the lost go unpreached. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. The next time the, challenge, uh, the challenges outside tempt you to shut the door and stay inside, stay long enough to get warm, then get out. Go. Because when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. So, who wants to fight? <laughs> Who wants to live a dangerous Christian life in our holy huddle and not think about the lost outside? How do you think the church in Philadelphia felt? I mean, they were persecuted. They were marginalized. They were pressured. There was cultural issues. They were being pushed towards having to worship Caesar. And if you don't, you can lose your business, your trade, your life. How are they feeling when Jesus says, listen, I've placed in front of you an open door? How are they feeling? Can you imagine if Jesus said to you, listen, your neighborhood, I actually have put an open door there. Or your workplace, or your school, or wherever you, you know, recreational places, you go in the community regularly. If you said, I've put an open door there, there are people that we're going to reach there. How would you feel? How would you feel? If he said that to you, if he showed up in a dream tonight and said, your neighborhood... I've put an open door there. How would you feel? How do you think the church in Philadelphia felt? I think of two words. Excited and nervous. Can anybody relate? I think on the excitement side, it'd be like, I mean, this is what I'm hoping for. I want people to experience the love and truth and reality of Jesus. But are you sure you want to use me? Like people are getting marginalized for this. Can't you use just your magic evangelism hand God just boom make it happen he says I would love to use you and so why do they feel nervous well we actually know from the text two particular reasons Jesus even says they have little strength so they feel weak Um, and then he talks about these people who are the synagogue of Satan who think they're Jews and they're clearly some opposition (laughs) so they feel weak and what else do they feel intimidated. Can I just ask you a question? When you think of sharing Jesus with people in the sphere of influence that you have right here in the Comox Valley, how many of you might also feel weak and intimidated at times? Good. Me too. And guess what? That does not disqualify you. In fact, if anything, it may qualify you for the open door because you won't go out in your own strength. You'll go out dependent on the Holy Spirit and together with others. And that's how God wants it. Dependency and together. Now, 
If you feel weak at all or intimidated, you're in good company. I just have to, I can't resist going here just for a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, anybody heard of the Apostle Paul? Did he happen to plant churches, a lot of them? Did he happen to be known as a very strong missional leader in the church? Absolutely. You probably have your own ideas of the kind of personality and powerful individual Paul must have been. Listen to him write. It's as if he opens a page of his journal and he shares it with the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came with you, I came to you with what? Listen to this. In weakness and in fear and with not just trembling, much trembling. Paul, that's what you felt? Yes. My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Some of you should be like, phew, because I, I sometimes I don't know what to say. Well, that's Paul saying, listen, I didn't know what to say either. But with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on a person's wisdom but on God's power. What do you see Paul doing when he took the gospel message to a new city, to Corinth? He was dependent on God in him, and he was dependent on the others with him. If you read, for those of you who want to follow up later on, we don't have the time for it this morning, but if you read Acts chapter 18, the first 11 verses, that's when he shows up in Corinth the first time. And he meets other people, Aquila and Priscilla, and then Silas and Timothy join him. So he's got sort of a group of others that he can begin working with. And he's dependent on the Spirit, and he's nervous, and he's uncertain, and he needs the encouragement of God. And Jesus actually shows up. Jesus is quoted in red letters in Acts chapter 18 because he shows up in the night to Paul and speaks to him and says, stay in this city, keep reaching people. I have many people here and I will be with you. So if you feel weak, if you feel intimidated, you're in a great place. You're, you're at least at the same level as the Apostle Paul. You just need the Spirit of God and you need each other to work with. So again, looking back to the letter of Philadelphia, in that particular letter, since it's our text for the day, how does Jesus address the weak and intimidated Christians in Philadelphia who've been given an open door? How does he speak to them? How does he want to give them a sense of courage and encouragement? First of all, he promises to be at work in the midst of those who oppose. Well, that's good news, isn't it? They're already feeling the threats that are coming in at them. And so Jesus actually says, reread this letter again for yourself. He says, I'm going to be at work. They're actually going to bow their knee too. Wow. Jesus promises to be at work in the midst of those who oppose. Secondly, chapter 3, verse 12 in the letter, Jesus says he will strengthen them and put them on mission together. This reminds me a little bit of what happened with Paul there. How will he strengthen them? He says that they will be pillars. Remember, they're in a shaky community with a history of earthquakes, so he uses a strong image of pillars. Now, when you've looked at ancient buildings, structures that remain, how many of them have just one pillar? <laughs> if you've built a home with a pillar, uh, that's a unique home, just the single pillar home. Usually they come in pairs, usually there's many of them, especially in ancient construction, right? Jesus was letting them know. He said, if you overcome, you will be a pillar. They knew buildings don't just have one pillar, they have many. And the pillar he was talking about were pillars that were going to hold a temple together. 
Well, instead of a temple that would crumble, like a temple to a Caesar or one of the Roman gods of the day, this is the temple for the living God that will last forever. It will never be defeated. It will never be shaken. It will withstand any threat. And what does it house? The Spirit of God. So Jesus is saying to them, listen, I'm going to make you into a pillar. The Spirit of God will dwell in you because you're a temple. That should encourage the church of Philadelphia, don't you think? And then they're thinking, wait, if I'm a pillar and you're a pillar and you're a pillar and you're a pillar, we're together. We're in this together. One of the things we talk about in the life of our church, and I'll just refer to our vision booklet so that I don't take up too much time here. You can do your own reading and homework later. But we talk in the last pages of this book about something called gospel intentionality together. Not being on mission solo, but teaming up with others. Chickens need friends. <laughs> I mean, if you feel weak and intimidated, don't do this by yourself. Jesus even sent out 72, two by two. He could have doubled his horsepower by sending them out one at a time, 72 different directions, but instead he, he paired them up. He cut his horsepower in half because they'd be more effective if they actually did something together rather than just by themselves. Some of you feel intimidated and weak in your neighborhood or in your workplace or at school or wherever you're involved in recreation in the community. And it might be because you're, you're kind of on mission there by yourself. Find somebody else. Gospel intentionality together. I think we're all called to that. Second, or third thing, Jesus speaks in the letter to Philadelphia. He draws attention to the opportunity in front of them. An open door. Even in our day and age, when somebody says there's an open door, it's, it's equivalent to this idea of there's an opportunity, right? And so Jesus wants them to realize there's an opportunity. He knows that they feel weak, they feel threatened, they feel insecure. So he wants them to be more conscious of the opportunity, to know that God is at work in their midst and there is an opportunity. Remember, Philadelphia was a gateway city. It was a highway city. In fact, Philadelphia had a highway going through it that connected Turkey east towards the rest of Asia. Opportunity. I want to say to you today, Comox Pentecostal Church, I want to say it to you on the main floor. I want to say it to you on the balcony. I want to say it to you in the front rows and the back rows and the backest rows up there and the front ones in the balcony and everybody in between as well. God is at work right now in the Comox Valley, especially amongst those who oppose him the most fiercely and are resisting him right now. He is at work. The same thing he spoke to the church in Philadelphia, he's at work doing here right now. Some of the people you think who are most difficult in your neighborhood or at work, God is at work. Are you limiting God to think, no, 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 God's at work in the nice people, but he's even scared of them too. No, of course he's at work. His love is pursuing them. And sometimes when people are most afraid of what's going on, they fight even harder. God is at work. And God is strengthening you. Everybody say me. He's strengthening you. And he's putting you together. You are like a pillar. Though the world feels shaky and uncertain, you felt weak and insecure at times, he's making you strong by placing his spirit in you and teaming you up with others so you don't have to be a silly pillar on your own but you get to be part of a group of pillars on mission together, housing the very presence of God. And friends, you must know that there is an astonishing and unusually open door into the Comox Valley right in front of Comox Pentecostal Church.
There is. I'm so convinced of it, I want to share 10 reasons right now. First is this. And if you plan to come to church today to get discouraged, you should leave now, because the rest of the way here, if Jesus saw an opportunity in Philadelphia, I've got to believe he sees an opportunity in your workplace, in your neighborhood, where you play disc golf or volleyball or whatever you do at your school, he sees an opportunity. Why? He's put an open door there. He's got faith to trust that he loves the people there, and he's reaching out towards them, and he's looking for partners. People would say, okay, I'll do it as long as you fill me and I can team up with others. I think there's at least 10 reasons why we could be convinced there's an unusually unprecedented open door in front of us to the Comox Valley right now. Reason number one, Vancouver Islanders are spiritually open. I've lived in other places of the world. You can easily have spiritual conversations with more people here than you can in other places in Canada. It's real. Now, we may not always agree on what we talk about, but there's an openness, not an automatic shutdown. Now, if you want to be a critic, you're like, wow, I know this person shut me down right away. Of course. But ratios and percentages, my goodness, there are so many spiritually open people in the Comox Valley right now. Number two, Vancouver Islanders see creation as their cathedral. Man, they love being outdoors. Do you know why? They don't even know why. Some of them do. They think they just enjoy it. But God has placed something in their hearts to behold his beauty and be in awe of it. And they're speechless at times without words. I was with a neighbor once, right here in our neighborhood. He was having a meltdown. He was just so troubled. And he came to me one night, and he just said, can I just talk to you? He's kind of a rough guy, great guy. No faith background. He's like, he just said, and he just started sharing a bunch of stuff from his life. Broken, broken, painful stuff. And I said, I, I don't know where you stand with things, but there's a reason you came to me, and it would it be okay if I prayed for you right now. I said, yeah, 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 please. So I prayed with him, and I just encouraged him. I said, I think you can do this too. He says, you know, there's times I just go to the beach, and I just look out at everything, and it's beautiful, and I just, I don't know, I just kind of talk. I'm like, that's it. Keep doing that. Your neighbors, your coworkers, others that you're among. Did you see the sunset like two weeks ago? One night, I walked down our stairs, and there's a window. I, could, I was like, oh, I had to go outside and just stand and take I walked around my neighborhood, and I'm just, this is unbelievable. And I walked back into the house, and I said to my boys, I'm like, did you look at that? I said, that didn't happen by accident. Someone did that. What a beautiful story. That creation isn't some sort of cosmic burp that just happened accidentally. God designed it, and he's the artist who's still at work. And Vancouver Islanders are in tune with that to a certain degree. They just don't see the signature at the bottom of the frame quite yet. What an opportunity for us. We live among these people. Third, Vancouver Islanders are relational. They will eat with you. They will have a drink with you. I've lived in other parts of the world where people are busy and don't have time for you. A lot of people have time here for you. They're hungry for a sense of community and connection. Again, in our vision booklet, you should really read about one of our values, three cups of tea and six other friends. In some Middle Eastern and Asian cultures, three cups of tea is the time it takes to get to know somebody. Six other friends, stats say the number one way adults in North America come to Christ is they have seven credible Christian friends. Vancouver Islanders are relational. That helps us. That's an open door for us. What if you and I could be their friends? What if we could help connect them with some of the other pillars in this church? You go 
and eat and drink with them. Number four, this is a great opportunity. We are in presently a postmodern, post-Christian setting. Amen. Some people are so grieved at how Canada has changed. It is for the better. Oh, some of you are going to be like, no way, Pastor Mike, I rebuke you. Get it off the stage. It is for the better. The canvas is becoming clear again for people where they're like, Jesus, who's that? Like, I've heard the name, but what's the story with Jesus? People don't even remember what church really matters or means anymore. Post-Christian, post-modern setting, there is a blank canvas, which means I've lived in other settings where everybody's like, oh, my parents took me to Sunday school. I don't like church. Well, they've got some ax to grind against the church. On Vancouver Island especially, there are people who are like, ah, what is church anyways? Who is Jesus? Like, was he actually historical? They don't have a preconceived idea that's tainted the canvas somehow. We live in a great moment for the gospel of Jesus. Fifth, people are realizing the empty promises of the gods of this age. All around you right now, there are people who are investing their lives into something that they will hope can save them or make them feel significant. Sex, money, power, business, whatever it may be. And they keep chasing. It's like a rat on one of those wheels. And it's not working, and it's not working. And over time, they start getting exhausted. And they're like, is there something else that, like, is this all there is? Some people, it's not their pursuit. It's when they've actually achieved what they always wanted. And they're like, this is it? This is it? Isn't there more to life than this? People are waking up right now in the Comox Valley to how destructive the God that they've tried to follow has been. Or how at least disappointing it is. Number six, Gen Z is especially spiritually curious. Um, church researchers across North America and the Western world are studying the church as they always do, but post-pandemic. And there's a shocking trend that's occurred. Post-pandemic, the group that has come back to church the slowest is boomers. Nobody would have predicted that because boomers are so loyal and so faithful. So if you're a boomer here, well done. You're, you bucked the trend. Great to have you. And what shocked everybody more, do you know who's coming to church the fastest? Gen Z, people in their 20s. Many of us wrote them off and thought they're a lost generation. They grew up without prayer in school, without the Ten Commandments. Look how crazy all the teaching that they're getting in the school systems right now. Oh, there's no hope. There is! They're coming to church. There's a row of them upstairs right now. A year and a half ago, I was in the parking lot talking with somebody, and I saw three young adults walk past me. I thought, I haven't seen them before, so I went and introduced myself. Randy, Nina, and Soren. And I said, I'm Mike. Uh, did you move to town recently? I don't think I've met you before. Or are you just looking for a church? And they're like, we're new to everything. What do you mean? Oh, man, the world's really confusing. And, like, we don't know what's going on. And we just want to figure out what's real. And so we thought we would visit church. And I was like, oh, so you grew up in church. You're kind of like coming back. Oh, no, no, we didn't grow up in church. You're telling me you just decided to show up at our church because you're trying to figure out life? Yeah. And then Randy said, I, I figured the Salvation Army would have a Bible. Uh, so I went and bought one. It's pretty confusing. I said, yeah, I agree. But maybe we can help on your journey. And here they are a year and a half. And they've brought more friends with them. Dixon and others. We have an open door 
to Jen's head right now. Number seven, post-pandemic. More people than ever before. People are wondering about important things. How do I deal with anxiety and depression? What's, what really matters in life? What's real? What can I trust? There's another couple sitting in our congregation today. This was part of their story. We just, the world's been shaken and we're noticing friends who have remained stable through it. And what they have in common is they know Jesus. That couple in our midst today is not the only couple in the Comox Valley. There's an open door to thousands of others who are questioning big things right now. What an opportunity. Number eight, the Comox Valley is still a small community. I know all of us, especially the originals, are like, oh, it's so busy and big here. Just go holiday in Vancouver for a week, come back, and you'll be like, wow, thank you for all this open space. Thank you, God, for only 80,000 people. <laughs> I remember the first time we lived here and then moved to Victoria, and we were trying to start a missional group, small group, in Fairfield, a particular community in Victoria. And so we're like, we're looking for people who live close by, who want to be on mission to help reach the neighborhood of Fairfield together. <laughs> and God sent us people, uh, and they joined us, but one lived in Saanich. A few of them actually lived in Saanich. Some people were driving down from Sydney to join our small group. And then we had people driving from Souk to our small group. If you look at a map, they're very far apart. But to them, they're like, well, it's all sort of part of this big area where it takes an hour to get anywhere. And we actually reached some people in Fairfield. And I remember, I was like, I forgot. I just wish when we lived in the Comox Valley that I was aware of how tightly knit we were. We had the common mission opportunity all around us. We lived close to each other. We we're involved in the same things. I would see the same people around town all the time. There is common mission opportunity. The Comox Valley is pregnant with opportunity for common mission. Again, gospel intentionality together. Three cups of tea and six other friends. Please read about it here. You'll understand what we're talking about. Number nine. Here's the ninth reason why there's an unprecedented, astonishing open door from this church to the Comox Valley. You are a warm, friendly, love, loving church family. You really are. There are people who are so broken and so lost, and they just are waiting for the moment they can kind of collapse into a community that will just say, we love you. You're welcome here. We care for you. That's you. There is an unprecedented, astonishing opportunity because of an open door Jesus has placed in front of the Comox Valley. I've given you nine reasons. Here's the tenth, and it's the most important. Jesus is magnificent. I mean, if people could just see him, oh, if they could just behold him, I mean, We've got a whole book about him, but just this one little letter to Philadelphia. What do we discover about him? He's the one who holds the keys. We heard about keys earlier in Revelation. He said earlier in Revelation, he holds the keys to death. When he holds the keys of David, it means he holds the keys to salvation. It means here is the one, the only one in all ex of existence, in all time, who holds keys to both life and death. He holds keys with authority over every evil and every darkness and wickedness. What a place to put our hope. What a place to put our hope. Here's the one who says in this text, I'll make you into pillars, I'll make you a temple. He's the one who's saying, I am secure. I am safe. 
Our whole world is wound up trying to feel secure and safe, and right in front of us we have a living Savior, the one who is risen, who he alone is safe, he alone is secure. It's the thing everyone is hoping for. He's magnificent. And he opens by saying he's holy and he's true. And I have to, I have to tell you, he says this. Some people are so offended that we talk about truth. I remember having somebody say to me in our house, yeah, I don't believe in absolute truth. I think everybody's got their own path, their own truth. My friend, what you just said was a statement of absolute truth. <laughs> that, that might be nice of you to say, but it's not true. There has to be a absolute truth. And what we have in front of us is a God who has the audacity to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And he's holy. Some people think it's an unpopular opinion. He has standards. Purity matters. There is right and there is wrong. But holiness in God's world is happiness. And he's the happiest one out there. I want to follow him. Let's stand and worship him together.